Good morning. Our reading today is from Hebrews, if you want to turn it way towards the back. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understood that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, He condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the immeasurable grains of sand in the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, your word is a sharp sword. And so as I come to handle it, it's a fearful thing. And I ask that you would help me to be faithful, accurate, and careful as I preach. I pray that you would use it in my heart and in the hearts of those who are here to listen, to penetrate deeply, to expose our sin, and ultimately to bring us healing as we cling to the promises that we find here. Lord, I pray 
that like all of these that we have just heard about, who did incredible things by faith, that you would give us the faith that we need to obey your word and to follow Jesus. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, who died for us to make this possible so that we can even come and ask. I pray it in his name. Amen. The book of Proverbs, chapter 27, verse 7, says, The one who is full loathes honey. The one who is full loathes honey. And that's a terrible tragedy. That, that is eating too much of your main course and vegetables and missing out on dessert. That is being satisfied with something lesser so that you miss out on something greater. To put it one way, it's like having a stomach so full of carrots that you don't want cake. And isn't that a tragedy? This morning, I want to show you from the text of Luke chapter 18 and 19, the incredibly high cost of following Christ, and yet the infinite reward that comes in knowing Jesus. We're going to see someone who was so satisfied with good things in life that he had no need for Christ. And so he walked away and he was lost. Then we will see where following Jesus really leads, what his invitation to follow really means. And then after that, we will see two people who leave their lives and follow Christ and find real joy that is full of happiness and full of praise as they left their old lives. And it's my prayer that before we leave this room today, you and I will commit to following Jesus Christ with our whole hearts. That if as the Spirit of God reveals to you and to me the idols that we have that are keeping us from following Christ, we, by the power of God, would tear them down and run after Christ with renewed commitment. Because I believe the truth is, if we are honest, and we should always be honest, the truth is, we do not follow Christ with our whole hearts all the time. Even if at some point in your life you have, we don't live there. And it's easy for things to creep in and cause us to lose focus. It's easy for things, like Revelation says, to cause us to lose our first love. And for some of you here, you've never tasted the honey of Christ, the joy of peace with God. And if that's you, my prayer is that you would catch a vision for something so incredible that you would be happy and joyful to leave everything behind and follow Christ in a way that you never have before. What many people do in America, even people who call themselves Christians, is they follow God but not with a whole heart. 
They follow God and they give him what's left over. We work to build our houses so that they're comfortable. We work to have nice, reliable cars so that we don't have to break down on the side of the road. If possible, we would like to have a boat, maybe an RV. And more than anything, we just want to live our lives the way we want. The dream is so that you don't have to work and do the job you hate, but so you can live the life you love. So you might put in overtime. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of those things. None of those things are sinful. But the problem is, if your life is full of those things, there's no room for Christ. And if you're using those things for yourself and not in service of the king, you're missing out on what Jesus has called you to do as he has invited you to follow him. That's not real Christianity. That's a stomach full of carrots. And the truth is, if you're satisfied with those things, not only are you missing out on cake, the truth is, if you're so satisfied that you don't want Christ, those good things will kill you. And if you don't think that's true, if you think maybe I'm being extreme, maybe I'm being radical, let me show you what Jesus says in Luke chapter 18. Now, I'd urge you if, you, if you brought a Bible, turn there. If you want to use your phone, find the passage. Grab one of the Bibles in the seats around the room here. Find the Gospel of Luke. Turn to chapter 18 and look at verse 18 through 30 with me. It says, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Now this whole passage that I've just read and and the rest of the passage that I'm going to preach on today through the first 10 verses of chapter 19, all of it is given an answer to the question, 
what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or to put it maybe another way, a better way, how can I have eternal life? You can see eternal life in verse 18 with this young, man, young man's question. You can see it in the response of Christ, especially in verse 25. When he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. He, the entering the kingdom, having eternal life, those are synonymous. They're different ways of looking at the exact same thing. You can see it in verse 26. When those who heard it ask, then who can be saved? We are intended to understand being saved, entering the kingdom of heaven, having eternal life. All of those are describing the exact same thing. And you can see it in verses 42 and 43. When Jesus says to a blind man that he's healed, your faith has made you well. Or more literally, your faith has saved you. And you can see it in verse 9 and 10 of chapter 19 when Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house since Zacchaeus also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This whole text is intended to help us understand what it means to have eternal life. You can look at it from different angles. That Some of the terms used, that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, they're, they're intended to help you understand what it means to live in the presence of God with all of the joy that comes from God's goodness in creation. We ought to have a picture of a prosperous kingdom full of unending feasting. And the greatest thing about it is the presence of God is there and you can come into the presence of your creator, your maker, who loves to sing over you and experience the joy of knowing him that's deeper than the joy that a child has in the best father or in the best mother. More precious than that relationship is enjoying the presence of God and that's what the kingdom of God is all about. And so this young man that comes to Christ that asks, how can I have eternal life? How can I enter the kingdom? How can I be saved? He's concerned at missing those good things. And his question is good. There are only two possibilities. Either you come to Christ and receive eternal life from him, or you are separated from God for all of eternity and spend eternity in hell. And if you have questions about that, I would urge you to read Luke chapter 16. Jesus has already talked about that. Or read Matthew chapter 25. The options are life or death, one or the other. And so the question that this man asks Jesus is of infinite importance for each one here. But there's a problem with the way he asks his question. And Jesus exposes it in his answer. And so I want to urge you to look again at verse 18. Ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus does a few things in his response that should have caused this young man to stop 
and to ask further questions. But he didn't. See, he assumes in asking this question that he can do something. That he, in his own power, is able to do the thing required to have eternal life. And Jesus replies in a way that exposes his heart to reveal to him, no, you can't do what is required. In fact, it's impossible with man, is what Jesus later says. So he asks him to do something that he is powerless to do. But not only that, he also gives this young man a vision of what he must do in order to be saved. What are you talking about? Well, look back at the text with me. Look at Jesus' response. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now that should have been alarming to this young man because he's about to claim that he is good. When Jesus says, you know the commandments and lists them, and he replies, all these have I kept from my youth, Jesus had already told him, no one is good but God. So you come self-assured, thinking you've kept the commandments, you're wrong, you are not good. But he still wants to believe that he's good. He feels that maybe something is missing, that maybe he doesn't quite have the assurance that he wants, but his basic assumption is, if I just do one more little thing, Jesus, tell me what it is and I'll do it, and then I'll be guaranteed to have eternal life. And Jesus assures him, No one is good but God alone. And in that moment, he should have understood that his whole life was built on a flawed foundation. And at the same time, Jesus asked him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone? Jesus is inviting him to consider again who he is. Because the young man was right about Jesus. Jesus really is good. But he was infinitely more than a teacher who dispenses advice. He is almighty God. And so this young man shouldn't have been asking for advice on what he needed to do. He should have been looking to Jesus to do it for him. He should have been looking to Christ to provide the salvation and eternal life that he needed but he didn't, and he never did. And as Jesus replies, he begins to expose to this young man how his heart has gone wrong. And this is a terrifying exchange for at least a couple of reasons, because number one, this young man would have thought himself a good follower of God. He would have gone to temple and offered all the right sacrifices He would have memorized portions of the law. He he knows the commandments. He believes that he obeys them. When he's tempted to do what's wrong, he remembers the command of God and tries to do what's right. And he offers sacrifices. And the whole problem with his way of life is that he's confident that he's able to earn eternal life. And Jesus shows him that he is self-deceived. So he exposes to him the thing he lacks. And he says, some of the most troubling verses that Jesus ever says, he says, one thing still you lack, this is in verse 22, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. 
But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Now, this passage bothers a lot of us, and it should, because it looks like Jesus says, if you want to go to heaven, sell your stuff. But that's not what he means, and I want to prove that to you from the text. You can see it in at least two ways. First, you see it in the young man's response. See, he, he doesn't say, all right, Jesus, I'm going to do it, and then I will have earned eternal life. The, the point was not for him to have one more thing to do. The point was to show him that he was powerless to do what needed to be done. The sorrow that he has at the command of Christ is illustrating that he is not as righteous as he thinks he is. He loves his stuff more than he loves God. What this conversation reveals is that the man that thought he was a good follower of God was actually a worshiper of himself. And he did all the right things as far as religion is concerned. But the first commandment is, and we need to know this and we need to to be warned by it, the first commandment is, have no other gods before me. It doesn't matter if you go through all the motions and do all the right things and check all the right boxes. If you are worshiping a God before Almighty God, you are not right with him. He thought he was good, but he was wrong. And when Jesus asked him to leave his stuff, it became obvious that his heart was not right. He was breaking the first commandment. And Jesus' command revealed the true condition of his heart. So I'm going to say the first reason you know that you're not saved by selling your stuff is because it was an impossible command for this young man to obey. And all it did was reveal his sin and his sorrow. He was so full of good things that he loathed the honey of Christ. He did not want to follow Christ. He loved his stuff more. He had no idea how good it is to follow Jesus. And he didn't care because he had gorged himself with houses and fields and cows and boats and stuff that will break and fall apart and perish. That's why Jesus says it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven because rich people are satisfied with the things that they have and they have no real need for Jesus in their own hearts and in their own minds. The thing that's frightening about this is just how common that attitude is in our hearts and in our lives. His love for stuff was as universal then as it is today. This is not the only young man to have a problem like this. In fact, you can see that the crowds who heard Jesus' teaching were deeply distressed by what Jesus said because they thought that wealth was a sign of God's blessing. So that if you had material wealth, you would assume the person was right with God, especially if you could see them going to temple and making sacrifices and they had a good reputation. So if God had blessed someone with wealth, they thought, you must be right with God. And they thought their desires to be wealthy, even if they didn't have wealth, they thought they were good desires because they were just seeking the blessings of God. But the reality is, Jesus is saying, if you want the stuff more than you want the God who made it all, your heart is wrong. 
And so they ask, well, who then can be saved? And this is the second reason why it's obvious Jesus is not teaching salvation through selling your stuff. Because he doesn't say, anyone who sells his stuff. That's not the point. Look at what he actually says in response to this question. Verse 26, those who heard it, then who can be saved? Verse 27, he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. The second reason it's obvious Jesus is not teaching salvation through selling stuff is he's teaching that salvation is impossible from a human end. He gave the man a command he could not obey. And what he should have said is, Jesus, I can't do that. Jesus, help me. But he had no desire to ask for the help of Jesus because he couldn't fathom anything greater than the stuff he already had. He was full of something as boring as carrots. And the frightening thing is, we would look at what he had and say, man, I want some of that. We have the same desires that he had. And if we don't realize that we need God Almighty to open our eyes and to reveal our own sin and to save us, we also will turn away in sorrow and miss out on eternal life and the kingdom of God, and we will spend eternity separated from, ever, from, from Him forever. But the good news is, salvation is possible with God. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. You and I are lost. He came to seek and to save you. And so the hope is that as you cry out for mercy, that God will open your eyes and you will see Jesus for who he is and how amazing he is, and you will happily and gladly and joyfully let go of your idols and follow him with your whole heart. And if you do that, there is an infinite reward. So I titled this first point, The high cost and infinite reward of following Christ. The high cost is you need to let everything in your life go as you look to Christ in faith. Don't cling to anything that you do for yourself. Don't think of your possessions as belonging to you. You look to Christ and Christ alone for your hope and salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins, and for the new life that belongs not to you, but to God who saved you. And if you find that faith and you look to Christ in faith, you will find an infinite reward. Look at how Peter responds to this teaching. Look again at verse 28. Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time And in the age to come, eternal life. Now what's he talking about? He's still not talking about salvation through leaving your stuff. He's saying that when you let go of your things, God does not owe you anything. You're not indebting God to you by your obedience. God will richly bless you beyond anything you could ever imagine. And he's not talking about piles of cash. There are preachers who will say things like, if you just had faith, you'd have a bigger bank account. 
If you just had faith, God would bless you in all these financial ways. Your worries would be over. I heard a story of a young woman who, who wanted more material blessing, and she believed after listening to a preacher that what she needed to do to get a better job was to quit the job that she had. So she put in notice, quit her job, and couldn't find another one. If your hope is to get stuff, God will not satisfy your hope. But if your hope, as Jesus said, is for the sake of the kingdom of God, you will find God supplies your every need according to his riches and glory. And your greatest needs are not material. If you think about what happens to Peter, the guy that asked this question, Lord, we left everything for you, what's going to happen to us? Peter lived his life in poverty as an itinerant preacher. He went all over telling people the good news of Jesus. You see some of his greatest days in the book of Acts as he preaches and proclaims the good news that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead and you can have peace with God when you repent and are baptized. And you know what happens to Peter throughout the book of Acts? He gets beaten up and thrown in jail. He does not have piles of cash. He doesn't have houses. He doesn't have stuff. But you know what he does? He's full of joy and rejoicing. As they're beaten, they are thrilled that they are counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. He's got a joy that cannot be taken away. See, what happens with your material stuff is it gets old and it wears out. Nothing improves with age. The rich young ruler, his stuff is gone, and it's been gone for 2,000 years. Jesus will give you something that no one can take from you that will never perish. And that begins now. And Jesus says, in the age to come, you will have eternal life. So there's there's a high cost to following Christ. You give him your life, you give him your all. But God blesses you in ways that you cannot possibly imagine now. And there is an infinite, infinitely greater reward in knowing God. And Jesus describes how that's possible in the next few verses as he shows you where you will go if you follow Christ. So look with me at verses 31 through 34. It says, In taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Why does Luke include these verses right here? Because he wants you to know what it means to follow Christ. Jesus has already told his followers, you need to take up your cross and follow me. You need to be willing to die to yourself. And he wants you to know where he's going. He is going to die. Following Jesus may mean an incredibly difficult life full of trials. In fact, Jesus guarantees it. In this world, you will have trouble. But then what does he say? Do not fear, for I have overcome the world. And that's what he does in the resurrection. The hope of Christianity is not that God will give you all good things that you want now. It's infinitely greater than that. That no matter what he calls you to do and be in this life, 
You have the power and presence of God with you now. And you have the hope of resurrection just like Jesus had. And you participate in those things by faith. When you believe that Jesus died for you, Scripture describes you dying with Him. That your sins are paid for in the cross of Jesus Christ because you are united to Him by faith. And not only are you united to Christ in His cross, but you are united to Christ in His resurrection. So there is tremendous hope for you as you follow Jesus Christ. This is a hard truth to understand, and in fact, the text says the disciples didn't understand it right away. But immediately, you know what Luke does? He shows you two people who do actually follow Christ, and they experience present joy as they follow him. So you you see first a rich guy who turns away from Jesus because he loves his stuff more than God. Now Luke is going to show you A poor person who follows Jesus and finds incredible joy. Look at verse 35 through 43 with me. It says, As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And he heard a crowd going by. He inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you Well, and immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. You know what happens here? This illustrates the truth of what Jesus said, how difficult it is for one who has wealth to enter the kingdom of God. This is a poor blind beggar. He has nothing. His hope is in Christ. And you know what happens when your hope is in Christ and in nothing else? Jesus saves you. The thing that we need to realize is we are like this poor blind beggar. Even if you have some little wealth that you can be happy with, it will not last. You are poor. You do need the same mercy that this man asked for. And he asked Jesus to do something that is impossible with men. But Jesus does the impossible. He restores this man's sight. And notice what happens after he has come to Jesus and asked for mercy. He follows him. Following Jesus is only possible when you come to Jesus first and ask for mercy. You're not going to do it in your own strength. What the rich young ruler should have done is he said, Lord, have mercy on me. I can't let go of my stuff. And if he had asked for the mercy of Jesus Christ, I believe Jesus would have given him the power to obey. But he had no desire to do it. He was unable to repent. 
and he missed out on Christ. This blind man shows us what we need to do, what we must do. And and you may notice, I I said earlier in my my introduction to this message, I said that that Jesus says to him, your faith has saved you. And then when I read it in the ESV, I said, your faith has made you well. It's not wrong to translate this word as being made well, but what Luke is doing throughout his whole gospel is he wants you to have a whole picture of what salvation means. So he shows you lame people and blind people and leprous people, and every time Jesus heals them, he says, your faith has saved you. And then he also shows you sinful people knowing their guilt, coming to Christ. And Jesus says the same thing to them. Your faith has saved you. Because the kingdom of heaven has no blind people in it. There are no lame people in it. There are no sick people in it. When Jesus Christ rules on the throne and we are enjoying eternal life forever, there will be no blindness. And Luke wants you to know what the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus can heal your heart that you could never fix the same way he healed this man's blindness. And you can experience the joy by faith knowing what God has laid up in store for you. But you might say, all right, fine. So this poor desperate guy, he called out to Jesus in mercy, but he had nothing. He followed Christ, but it's not as if he had wealth to leave. So maybe it was easy for him. All right, I'll grant you that. But then look at what happens in the first 10 verses of chapter 19. You see a rich man following Christ. Because with God, it's impossible. Excuse me, with with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And Jesus came to save this man. Look with me at the first 10 verses here. It says, He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. But he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner, which was absolutely true, because Jesus loves sinners. And look what happens when he does this. Verse 8, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Notice what happens here. You've got a rich man giving up his riches because he has gained Christ. Notice what happens first. He welcomes Jesus into his home. He has a desire to know Christ. And in doing that, he no longer cares about the things that he used to love. He was a dishonest man. He loved money. That's how he had lived his life. 
But he found it empty and he found it dry and he knew his sin. And in knowing his sin, he knew he needed a savior. And so he was seeking to see who Jesus was. And in seeking Jesus, he found salvation and it made it so he didn't care about his stuff. You know, the third reason that you know Jesus is not teaching salvation through selling stuff is Zacchaeus only gave half his goods to the poor. Jesus didn't say, you know, you're halfway there. You just got to go a little more. No, it, it's, it's not about the stuff. It's about your heart. It's about where your hope is. And Zacchaeus' hope was completely in Christ Jesus, the Savior who, who welcomed him, who came to his home even though he was a sinner, who called him by name, who loved him. And when he met Jesus... None of his stuff mattered anymore. He demonstrates true and real repentance. You know, if Zacchaeus came to me as a pastor and said, you know, I feel like I'm not right with God and I just, I don't know what I need to do. I would have said, trust in Jesus Christ. Admit your sin to God and experience the forgiveness that God promises you. And if he said to me, you know, I'm thinking about selling my stuff and giving it to the poor and and I'm going to repay everyone I've ever wronged. I would have said, no, 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 no. It's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus did for you. And that's true. But here's the thing that Zacchaeus is showing. When Jesus changes your life, your repentance shows your faith. And he is demonstrating a kind of repentance that I think is almost entirely absent from American Christianity. He is willing to give up the things that you and I love because he's got something greater. And my concern as a pastor is that we don't think Jesus is as great as our RVs and our camping weekends and our house on the lake and our cars. We think that Jesus is a nice addition to those things and we don't see the two as being in competition. And I believe that Jesus would say to each of you today, you need to check your heart. It's possible that your things have a hold on you and you need to smash those idols and follow Christ with your whole heart. And if that seems impossible, do what the blind man did. Call out for mercy. Jesus will answer. If you say, all right, Zacchaeus did it, this blind guy did it, but but who does this today? Well, I want to give you one example that nearly everyone in this room knows personally. I would say Paul and Becky Finkel. Paul and Becky Finkel, they found the mercy of Jesus. Paul found deliverance from sins that were killing him and his marriage. And when he found the power of Jesus and the forgiveness and mercy of Christ, he and Becky experienced the call of God to literally sell everything and move to Zambia, where they started a ministry to people that the church was neglecting so that they could see people saved and the church built up. And it started here when they encountered Jesus and Jesus laid it on their hearts. You need to sell it all and go. And they did. Don't say that people don't do that today. People do do that. And not only that, I believe if you are a follower of Christ and you don't have this right, I believe that Jesus 
will deal with you. That he will expose your sin and it will not be pleasant. You know, I've, I've talked in the past about my father-in-law. I, I jokingly call him Jethro. When I say good things about my father-in-law, I never ask. I figure that's probably fine, right? But I called him this week because his life illustrates perfectly the principle that if your possessions own your heart while you pay lip service to Jesus, Jesus will not permit that to go on. My father-in-law has, has been a believer for about 30 years, and there's been some fruit in his life. He has faithfully served in many different ways. He served as a deacon in one church. They've been the kind of volunteers that they show up and serve sacrificially in many, many ways. He's tried to, to run his home as a Christian man ought to. He's also been employed by GM for nearly 30 years. And Dave has a love for things and for stuff. And as a tech at GM, he had the ability to check out tools. Now, there's nothing wrong with tools, and he was permitted to do that. But what happened over the course of 30 years is he got a little forgetful about which things were his and which things were General Motors, and stuff that should have gone back to work stayed in his barn. And he continued to build his kingdom and enjoyed things like tractors and boats and one day he got a call from HR and they said, hey, do you have any tools that belong to us that are not here? And he said, yeah. He said, well, can you give us a list? And he said, well, honestly, I, I can't give you a complete list. I can tell you some of it. He said, all right, we, we want you to bring them back. So he went home and he went through his barn and he gathered everything he could find that, that belonged to them and took it back to GM. You know what they did? They fired him. And Dave called our family together and he said, I want to confess to you that I am a thief and I have brought shame on this family and I have brought shame on Jesus Christ because I loved my stuff and I did not obey my Savior. And there are people who hear that story. I've told it to different people and, and they, they almost kind of get mad because you know, the, the irony is everyone does what he did. You know, the next day after he was fired, mysteriously, all the toolboxes at the tech center were fuller than they had been in 30 years. All the guys are bringing back stuff that they borrowed that they never should have. And they feel like it was really unfair that, that Dave got fired for something that everybody does. You know who doesn't complain about it at all? Dave. Do you know why? Because he believes that Jesus had mercy on his soul by exposing his sin so he could repent and forsake it now before he sees Jesus face to face. That's what Jesus will do for you if you follow him. He will help you let go of your things. And I want to talk to each of you today individually and beg you, recognize that Christ is more precious. And if you can't recognize that, ask God to open your blind eyes like he opened this man's eyes. He will do it. And I want to urge you, admit your own sin. Recognize your need for a Savior that nothing you can do will please God and grant you eternal life. 
Know your need. And out of your need, look to Jesus. You you know, we love to talk about the cross of Christ, and we should and we must, because it's how our sins were paid for. But in the context of this message, think for just a moment. No one is richer than God. And Jesus Christ left all of the riches of heaven for you. He's not asking you to do anything that he didn't do first. So let go of your love for things. If you have no time to worship God because all of your time is consumed paying your bills, you need to change the way you live so that you can obediently follow Jesus. If you have no time to serve the Lord because you're busy serving yourself and relaxing in ways that you feel you're just owed, you need to change your life because you're not following Jesus. And so I want to urge you as as we close this message, you need to call out to Jesus and confess your needs. Say, Jesus, my stuff has a hold on my heart and I want to let it go, but I'm powerless to do it. Would you save me? And if you're not a believer today, I believe that means you need to identify with the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ through baptism. If you say, I don't know if I'm forgiven, give your life to Christ and show your faith by being baptized. And you can talk to me today. We will baptize you next week. I would love to help you begin a life of following Jesus Christ. If you're a believer today and your stuff has a hold on your heart and the Holy Spirit has convicted you, And maybe he's convicted you of something specific. Maybe you have a house you can't afford and you need to stick a for sale sign in front of it. Maybe you have a boat that's eating up your time and you need to just let it go so that you have more time to serve Jesus. I don't know. I I don't know what you have. I don't know what you need to let go and I don't know where your heart is. But God does. Would you listen to him now in this moment? Would you call out to Christ and ask him to save you? If the Holy Spirit has convicted you, would you be willing to obey him and commit to obedience today? Would you tell somebody about it? You know, if you make a secret deal with God, you will not follow through. But would you commit to obedience and to following Jesus? Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, Lord, you are the maker of every good thing. And we want to praise you for your goodness because you have blessed us in so many ways. Father, deliver us from the sin of loving your gifts and missing the giver. I ask that you would help us to recognize our need for Christ. And I pray that you would have mercy on us and deliver us from our sins and save us, Lord. And give us the strength to follow when we don't have it. In Jesus' name, amen. I have decided, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided. To follow Jesus, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. No, none go with me. 
As I dismiss you today, I've challenged you to do something that is impossible. But it's not impossible for God. And I want to leave you with verses that I pray will give you strength to obey. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do His will. You need His equipping to follow through and He gives it to you through the blood of Jesus. So may He work in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.